0: Welcome to the RCIA Hollywood Podcast, coming to you weekly from Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Los Angeles. RCIA Hollywood is a program designed particularly for artists who have an interest in exploring the Catholic faith in a systematic way, with the possibility of being fully admitted into the church during the Easter season. RCIA stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. And it's a process that dates back to the very first centuries of Christianity. This week's class on the moral life is led by yours truly, Clayton Emmer. We need to spend some more time, and I'm going to wait for Father Don to come back to do it, but talking about purgatory and indulgences, because Jennifer mentioned that like, huh, that was in the same kind of section. I don't know if it's in our reading, but it it's like, was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> At time.
1: the very end, I'm like, yeah, I touched it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually did talk to Barb. Yeah, exactly. I did talk to her on the phone, and I got it. Oh, okay, I, what get, did it.
2: Say I okay. get it. I get it. I
0: hope so. <laughs> she <laughs> <laughs> found out where the sale
1: was. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have enough. <laughs> 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 <for some> I'm <laughs> how, how
0: did Barb tackle it? What did she say? I mean, it's Basic,
1: Okay, I'm proud. This is very rudimentary. But basically...
0: It's related to purgatory we, closely. Yes, So because we not. don't yeah.
1: have this... Because God doesn't have the same sense of time that we do. Like, it's it's the things that we should be doing to increase our holiness anyways. Like, reading the Bible and praying and acts of service. And, and so, in the indulgences are... I guess you could almost, like, put them on a schedule of fees. Like, if you read the Bible for a half an hour, it's ten less days in purgatory. Now, she's like, it isn't, it's not really equated that way because God is not of time, but it's, but, like, say, like, martyrdom, she said, is complete wiping out of purgatory. So, like, if you were martyred for Christ, you don't spend any time in purgatory. So that indulgence of of martyrdom kind of wipes it all out. So it's, it's kind of like there's increments of, of, of things we should be doing to gain how do holiness. Know, like, how do we know if
3: martyrdom
1: crosses out I, I know, that's a good question for oh. Barb.
0: Mart- martyrdom basically is, a, is, is considered baptism. It's like baptism of desire. It's a baptism of blood. No. So you're giving your whole life to God. It's not really a question of whether you're in serious sin or not. It kind of covers over. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that scripture? Love cult- covers a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. is the ultimate witness of love. To give your whole life. So There's, there's no, no greater
4: love than to lead on your life.
0: A
1: good friend. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Uh, she, oh. Oh, go ahead. No, it's just... It's kind, it's kind of like... Well, I gave this analogy back to her to mm-hmm. try to understand it, and she said, yeah, that's right. It's like, if, if you go to the gym to exercise your muscle, this is like exercise... You know, your physical muscles. This is like exercising your spiritual muscles for the life beyond here. So you're, you're preparing. By doing all these things, you're preparing
0: for... That's a good way to think of it. Because yeah, really, purgatory isn't like God putting it at arm's length and saying, no, you know, you really didn't treat me very well, I'm going to hold you out there. It's just waiting for you to be ready. That's all it is. And in so truth,
4: the souls actually choose to do it. It's the same. I mean, you actually, as a soul, mm-hmm. choose that... Choose to say, "I want to make sure that I'm pure enough for you, Lord." So
5: yeah, the only delays—the I
0: mean, only delays in purgatory are, are the result of our not being ready, well, whatever yeah. we're attached to that's yeah. not God,
5: because
0: mm-hmm. we can't travel with anything that we have to God. Okay. Um, so things we're still clinging to, like everything—I think it'll be okay to take my iPhone with me, but everything else I have to <laughs> give up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she said,
1: okay. "Well," and she also said that it's that it's hardly ever like you won't ever hear it really mentioned in the church more because it got such a bad rap with Luther
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it's had such a bad PR that you you don't want like to hear it mentioned that way. Yeah. Because it's got these really bad
0: Most you'll never almost never hear a priest give a homily on them cuz they're just yeah. They feel like it's too touchy and it's too bad. It's really too bad because it's not anything to avoid. Um, I'm going to read the short definition from this compendium because they do this in Q&A format, and they say, um, what are indulgences? And it says, um, indulgences, and it refers to the paragraphs I think we read, 1471 to 1479, Uh, indulgences are the remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. Okay, kind of unpacking that, remission means forgiveness before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. So when you go to confession, okay, immediately when the, when the priest does the words of absolution and you receive repentance, um, the eternal punishment, the punishment that that means you're going to hell, is gone, that's taken away. But there's the consequence of, of what you've done that's still there. I mean, there's still people that have suffered because of what you chose to do or not do, whatever. So there's temporal stuff that needs to be taken care of, stuff in time, and um, indulgences are taking care of that temporal stuff that would delay you in purgatory because you hadn't made amends and so forth um, so anyways that's the definition of indulgence then it says the faithful Christian who is duly, duly disposed has the right disposition gains the indulgence under prescribed conditions for either himself or the departed so really these things like the prayers um, going to confession all these conditions for the receiving yeah. of this grace are there to make sure that the person is, has a proper disposition it's not like you can't, you can't buy them. That's the point. That was an abuse, and Luther was right to, to point out the abuse of it. Um, indulgences are granted through the ministry of the Church, which, as the dispenser of the grace of redemption, distributes the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints. So the suffering of the saints, the sufferings of Christ, each one of us, when we offer up our sufferings, are contributing to what they call the treasury uh, of grace, which is available then to distribute to other members of the faithful. So it's an act of charity on our part to say, "I'm suffering this." You know, I could ask for prayers for somebody I know, or I could just you know offer it back to God and the Church and say, "Whoever most needs this grace, you know, it will be available, you know, as God wills." So that's kind of the idea: it's distributing, distributing the goods, uh, the spiritual goods of the Church to those who
6: ask for it. A great example is Blessed Justino Marto of Fatima. Mm. She was. Dying a very painful death, and she was offering this up for the
5: conversion sinners. Perfect. Yeah. This 10 year old girl.
0: Yeah. Or did you see um, the exorcism of Emily Rose? That's kind of the idea. Really unusual situation. I don't think that's not the normal way in which um, possession happens. Usually you have to invite um, the demonic forces into you by some sin of your own. And in her case, you were like, what's wrong? She was just in a college room sleeping, and suddenly she's taken over by the spirit. And the idea that came out in the last part of the movie was that she had actually spoiler, uh, made an spoiler offer. Alert.
5: Spoiler alert, Oh sorry. Oh, No, oh, no okay, I've right. seen it.
0: She had actually made a, a, a decision to offer herself and her suffering for you know for whatever purpose God chose to, you know. So that people could even talk about the thing, right? Right, exactly, mm-hmm. to make sh- make it clear that that God exists and evil also exists. <coughs> so And that was written by not a Catholic, it was Scott Derrickson. Yeah, Day, um,
5: Day of the Earth Stood
0: Still Now. What's that? He's directing Day of
6: Stood Still Now. Oh, really? Oh yeah, It is a remake, cool. but it's a mm-hmm. good movie cool, cool, cool. originally, so. Cool.
0: Yeah.
3: Where cool. were you? We
0: classroom. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the I'll thing think that, yeah. that just
3: confuses me still, though, is the focus on time. Like, it just seems... Sure. I can understand that the, we were... Uh, Dan and I were at math, but the priest did mention a, a plenary indulgence. Yeah, so there's the all partial
0: the and plenary. Plenary means full.
3: Full. Yeah. It was full. And it was, um, you know, going to the shrine saying certain prayers and, and I'm sure having the right disposition. For it. But, um, mm-hmm. So I think I understand the full. Mm-hmm. But if we don't know, if, if, for all we know, purgatory is a purifying fire that we pass through for a second, mm-hmm. then it seems sort of silly to even have the church or priest mention, well, this is ten days off. Right. This is the next Saturday. Like, really, we were talking to someone <laughs> who's like, the, the Saturday after you die, <laughs> you're going to go to heaven if you do
0: that. Right. Yeah, that's that's the problem. I I think, I don't think the church officially the tr- talks about days anymore. That was another practice that it kind of crept in. Because um, this other handout I gave you on Purgatory. You should probably just look at that briefly because I think it mentions that. Um,
4: I think it's just also a way for us to under humanly be able to understand
0: yeah. we too. We'll it just helps sense. give yeah.
4: us a li- gives us a little grasp of Here we go. Okay, so this is what I'm looking at. But it's not like so it's not that's not literally
0: possible and the best you can do. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah, then it starts it
5: starts
0: hate hate to sound get sound into sound sound that sound sound thing where sound we imagine
6: Yeah.
0: It gets into that thing where we imagine that we actually kind of have the strings on what God wants to do. It's like, no. God is not our puppet, so we can't do that.
4: He's not?
0: No. So the last paragraph of the first section, in the middle of the first page, it says, Some imagine that the Catholic Church has an elaborate doctrine of Mm -hmm. purgatory worked out, but there are only three essential components. One, that a purification after death exists. Two, that it involves some kind of pain. Mm -hmm. And three, that the purification can be assisted by the prayers and offerings by the living to God. Other ideas, such that purgatory is a particular place in the afterlife, or that it takes time to accomplish, are speculations rather than doctrines. That's good to know. Oh. We're, we're not talking about the deposit of faith there. When somebody says days, you're not bound to believe that. When <laughs> he pulls that out.
1: And then where um, this is interesting, I sat in at a theology class this week at St. Monica's, mm, mm-hmm. and they the theology. Teacher was having, gazing all these topics, and then they had to look in the Old Testament for proof. And one of them was um, purgatory, and they didn't get to the point of actually like having time to say what they found. Mm-hmm. But I am curious: do, are there? Where do we find?
0: Um, um. Essentially, because all these references are from church fathers, aren't they? looks like on the next pages. Well, oh, I've got that But I have, I, I can <laughs> find the reference, I think. no, There's in, there. definitely a New Testament.
5: Maccabees? The third character? second Maccabees.
0: Maccabees, I think. First yeah.
2: Corinthians three eleven 11-15, and to five twenty five twenty six. 26 Does it spell them out? Okay.
0: Oh. And 12, 31-32. Let me look up that's the Maccabees one. That's all New Testament, not it? No, that's, that's, new, that's it has fine. A second that's an interesting thing, too, because, of course, Maccabees all isn't Maccabees in do. the in some of the, the, the canon, the Protestant canon, so mm-hmm. that makes it a little more difficult to find. Uh, oh there
1: is one. Oh, no.
0: okay. Second Maccabees what was the reference to Mac um, 12. 12 41 45. let me read that
4: you know what I have a book um, I bought it last year and I forgot I haven't shown it to you guys this year there's a uh, there's actually a book sent by some Catholic author I'll I'll bring it but it has scriptural things for all the main Catholic issues like uh, purgatory is one of them. Eucharist is another of just like scriptural huh. things for Old and New testament.
0: Okay. And that's where this came from. This came from uh, Rosalind Moss's organization, oh, okay. Catholic Answers. But um, here's the quote uh, from Maccabees, starting with 39, right? 41, it says. Oh, 41, okay. So it's just been after a battle here. And it says, They all therefore praise the ways of the Lord, the just judge who brings to light the things that are hidden. Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. The noble Judas warned the soldiers to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He then took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection of the dead in view. For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been useless and foolish to pray for them in death. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead, That they might be freed from this sin. So that's the precedent of praying for the dead. What was the other one?
1: Uh, They offered. Old Testament, but New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3. Okay. 11 to 13. 1 Corinthians
5: 3. Uh. Okay.
0: If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If the work stands that someone built upon the foundation, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God, which you are, is holy. So there's the image of fire and the the idea is a purifying fire.
5: Um,
0: Burns off all the dross, all the attachment, that kind of thing. And In that fact, that's C.S. Lewis's idea of, of, of the whole afterlife. is it's, it's God's consuming love as a fire. And for those who, you know, have been purified in this life, that fire is great, you know, it's, it's this intimacy with God. For those who are not quite ready, it's painful because there's still dross, it's being burned off. And for those who don't want to be in the presence of God, hell is the presence of God for those people. You can't, can't escape him because he's everywhere. Love is everywhere. People who just refuse love... That's the experience of hell. So it's not even like a, a place. So so that's open for discussion. The, the church has never declared he- hell. Uh, our purgatory is, is not uh, a place, because it's in it's not an eternal place, at least. It's it's only going to be around till the end of time. Purgatory is going to cease to exist at the end. There will be heaven and hell. That's all that will be left. But somebody's going to give a presentation during our... Uh, Easter, or the Triduum Retreat, on the last things. And they're going to talk about heaven, hell, death, and judgment. So we'll talk about a little bit more about the last things then. Other questions, are related to this whole thing of purgatory or indulgences? So, uh, one,
6: one quick thing, actually, yeah. back on the sale of indulgences. Uh-huh. Um, there's almost... Um, if it's... Bottom line, just an abuse of of the indulgence thing. Then that's not cool. But one thing is, there is almost a beauty to the image. I I remember hearing that St. Peter's Basilica was largely funded by the sale of indulgences, and that's almost a beautiful image for people to have been funding this through that. Right, right. (laughs) This beautiful building to be a
0: part of. Absolutely. There's no. There's nothing that would exclude money being part of one sacrifice, but it would never substitute for the personal conversion. That would be the abuse. Yeah. Oh, I'm living a crappy life, but I'm gonna throw some money at this problem. (laughs)
5: Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's not gonna work. (laughs) God God will not be fooled. That's the Hollywood answer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God will not be fooled.
6: Yeah, but I mean, if, if the intention of their heart was the right thing in the first place and it was a part of funding it, right? that's that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you
0: see in that reading. He, he sent money out to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. There's still the practice in the church. If you want prayers, you want a mass offered for somebody, you make a stipend. It's like $5, and then that intention is becomes the intention of the mass. And during the Eucharistic prayer, the priest says, you know, the intention of this mass is the soul of so-and-so. So there's that practice, but it really just pays for the cost of the materials for Mass. It's not it's not a fundraiser by any means. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but I'll, I'll be curious to see. Father Don probably has more to say about it, but uh, that's a start anyway. Okay, let's jump into the stuff about the moral life. Um, I didn't assign everything. I, I was sitting up late last night at Big Boy in Burbank reading through all of the section around what we're reading, and I'm like... Dang! I should have signed it all. <laughs> this is also good, but um, uh, so what we might do. I'm not concerned about how far we get today, uh, but I think this is really important—not just to jump into commandment, the first commandment, and say, "Okay, what do we do and not do?" Because the church is, the way to set up the catechism is clear that that's not the vision. It's not—we're not talking about moralism here, or um, what do you call this? It's the kind of vision of the moral life where you just find the list of do's and don'ts and look at those. It doesn't... The church has a much broader vision. It's like, okay, here's the moral life, here's why we're interested in it, and then here's, you know, the precepts, here's the principles for discernment of what's right and wrong. So um, I wish you guys had a copy of the compendium, this summary, because what they do in here, it's really cool, is that each section... This is actually a whole section of the catechism on the moral life. So we have the first section is about the creed, it's what we believe. That's section one, um, the profession of faith. The second section is the sacraments, which they talk about um, how we are sanctified, You know, the grace that's offered in the church. So that's the second section, celebration of the Christian mystery. And the third section is living the moral life. It's life in Christ. And that's this whole thing about the moral life. And in a compendium, they've done cool stuff of providing some sacred art at the beginning of each section. And so they've got this image at the section of man's vocation is life in the spirit. And it's an image of the Blessed Mother surrounded by a bunch of angels. And Anyway, you'll eventually have a copy of this. But they do a great thing. And in the back of it, they actually describe... I'm just going to read this short passage about what the art means. Because it sets up this whole section of the moral life. It says, Mary, the all-holy, is the masterpiece of the Holy Spirit. Her existence from her immaculate conception to her glorious assumption in heaven is completely sustained by the love of God. The spirit of the love of the Father and Son makes of Mary a new creature, the new Eve. Her heart and mind are intent upon the adoration of and obedience to the Heavenly Father. She is his beloved daughter, and she is also dedicated to the acceptance and service of the Son, whose mother and disciple she is. Her soul is likewise intent upon her surrender to and cooperation with the Holy Spirit, for whom she is a treasured sanctuary. In this image, Mary is surrounded by angels playing musical instruments and making Mary, her head crowned with the divine love of the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the dove. Mary is the mother and protector of the church. At her feet, there is a faint glimpse of a sacred edifice. Through her efficacious motherly intercession with Jesus, she pours out upon the church the abundance of heavenly grace, symbolized by the blooming roses. Below at the left, the Apostle John is there in contemplation of the Immaculate Mary. The Apostle John represents every one of the faithful who see in the Blessed Virgin the perfect model and likewise the teacher and guide for living in the Spirit. The Cistercian abbot Christian from the 12th century reflected on how the Apostles shared with Mary their spiritual experiences. Comparing them to the 12 stars which crown the Blessed Virgin, he wrote, Frequently they gather around the most prudent virgin, like disciples around their teacher, to learn more fully the truth about what she had done, the truth that they would preach to others at the right moment. Since she was divinely set apart and taught, she showed herself to be a true storehouse of heavenly wisdom, since in her daily life she had been close as a singular companion to wisdom itself, namely her son, and had taken to heart and faithfully kept the things she had seen and heard. That's from a sermon by Christian. Um, but the uh, the the artist El Greco, uh, Saint John contemplates the Immaculate Conception. So I guess that's Saint John down there. But um, but the whole point would be that the whole section on the moral life—it's it's not about do's and don'ts. It's it's this whole vision of man's life, living in the Spirit. Um, and the whole moral life is an expression of living in the Spirit. You know, the sacraments are God, are are the Holy Spirit's activity. That's where we see the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we see the Holy Spirit also, especially in the lives of the saints, and. Also in our own lives, that's the whole point of our life, is we are to be uh, expressions of the love of God, incarnate. So that's what the vision is here. And so, um, yeah, let's take a look at the Catechism, how it kind of sets this up here. Uh, so the paragraph that begins this section, it looks like it's um, 16, wait a minute, 1691. And I'm not going to read everything. I'm going to pick out some highlights here. First paragraph uh, is a quote from a sermon by Leo the Great. 1691. Christian, recognize your dignity. And now that you share in God's own nature, do not return to your former base condition by sinning. Remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Never forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. So it's a perfect transition here from, okay, the sacraments of initiation are the second section. Now that we're members of Christ's body, you know, we're being exhorted to remember who we are and, and that sin, you know, is, becomes a, an obstacle to, to living fully in the body. And so we need principles by which to live, and, and this is what this whole section is, is about. Um, and it's not our own work, it's really clear, especially with the Blessed Mother. Her her perfect life was not, gosh, she, just, she was just really talented, you know. It was the Holy Spirit was inspiring her, and she was completely docile to the Holy Spirit. So in every in every action, every decision, she was doing choosing exactly what God would choose. And that's kind of our model. It's, it's, it's not even about... Um, our moral life is really complex. We face a lot of difficult decisions. There's all kinds of complex questions out there about stem cell research, blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, it becomes pretty simple, though, because the moral life is about that responsiveness to the Holy Spirit who's always going to guide us into the truth and so um, we really that's, that's the ultimate principle um, and then the church is going to offer all of this wisdom to help us along the way because the church isn't going to speak about stem cell research that was not an issue in the Didache they weren't <laughs> doing stem cell research um, the principles are there for us and now it's up to us to be docile of the Holy Spirit examine the principles that are given us in the catechism and then make prudent decisions and that's a gift of the Holy Spirit it's a gift of prudence practical wisdom to respond in the right way at the moment and that's what if you if you know people that are holy or if you look at the lives of the saints it's amazing you can just watch them follow them around and you'll just be like how did they figure out to say that and do that at just that time and it's 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 clearly you know it's that it's that constant communication with the holy spirit that just inspires them to do what needs to be done it's just very clear they can see this is sin this is temptation this is the right thing to do and they just, minute by minute, are choosing and living according to the Spirit. It's really beautiful. Um, Let's see. Okay, next paragraph. Does somebody else want to read? I'll let somebody else read the second one, 1692.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: I'll read it. Okay. The symbol of the faith confesses the greatness of God's gift to man in his work of creation, and even more in redemption and sanctification. What faith confesses, the sacraments communicate, by the sacraments of rebirth Christians have become children of God partakers of the divine nature coming to see in the faith their new dignity, Christians are called to lead henceforth a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, they are made capable of doing so by the grace of Christ and the gifts of his spirit, which they receive through the sacraments and through prayer
0: Yep, said said a lot better than I did (laughs) but that's the idea is We, we have the knowledge of our faith we have the grace of the sacraments and now we have the spirit's help to to uh and prayer sacraments in prayer to, to actually live the moral life uh, and it's beautiful too, there's a certain freedom that comes with the thing you had a class on freedom already but the freedom that comes from the spirit is that you know we're not supposed to look like um we're not supposed to look like saint paul or saint peter um or any of these particular people. Some people get into this mode of, oh, I'm gonna be a saint, therefore I gotta look exactly like X, Y, or Z. Or maybe this other person in my life who I know is really holy. But it's it's no. Every person has a unique God is trying to express something uniquely through each one of us. Um, and the Spirit is the one that's gonna inspire that in us through sacraments and prayer. Um, okay. How many long are you? Sixteen ninety
1: three. Christ Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father and always lived in perfect communion with Him. Likewise, Christ's disciples are invited to live in the sight of the Father who sees in secret in order to become perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect.
0: Mm. And that's an interesting point too because that's the thing about the saints is you really have to examine them especially if if it's somebody that's still alive and you suspect holiness there. They're not going to call out their holiness—that's going to be a, that would be a counter indicator of their growth in holiness if they're paying, drawing attention to it. But it's that whole thing of go to your Rome pray to your father in secret. And um, saints actually make an active effort, you know, to hide, oftentimes the signs of grace. Like Mother Teresa was pretty, I think, pretty masterful at like that. But the, the fruits of it were so she couldn't really hide it completely. But she, you know, her own efforts were not to. To make any an visible sign of the gifts she was receiving, because they're gifts and not hers anyway, you know.
4: Yeah, so often you hear of stories of the saints of not, like Saint Thomas is a great example, or even even Saint to Tommiani. He, to mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, he was about to
0: burn in the Summa Theologia or whatever.
4: Yeah, Saint Saint yeah Saint Thomas Aquinas. He was about to
0: burn. his collection of theology is multi-volume, like synthesis of everything, like a catechism. And At the end of his life, he's like, yeah, this is. He, he, I don't think he actually was uh, had the intention of setting on fire, but he's like, this is in comparison to what I'm about to face, in the in the beatific vision. This is all straw, and it might as well be burned. He almost had a vision at that point, didn't he? And I think so. It was some kind of a mystical experience, probably. Saw how small everything was. Yeah, <laughs> put everything in perspective.
4: <laughs> but even in his studies, I mean, people thought he was th- thought he was dumb and quiet. I mean, because he, he sat in class dumb not ox. saying anything, and they, so they called him the dumb ox. He's
0: big guy, yeah,
4: big guy and stuff. And it wasn't until he actually went to his professor, I think, mm-hmm. and showed him a paper or something, and the professor was just, "Oh my gosh, he's actually <laughs> really brilliant!" And, uh, yeah. So it's just funny. Seems like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, sixteen ninety four. I'll read this one. Incorporated into Christ by baptism. Christians are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and so participate in the life of the risen Lord following Christ and united with him Christians can strive to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love by conforming their thoughts, words, and actions to the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus and by following his example and that's the whole journey of conversions really what it's about is Informing everything. Just taking everything in your day and the principle of discernment is just like, okay, here's a decision before me. How does this stand up before the test of, of putting it before the mind of Christ? I mean, it's like the popular phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? People kind of make fun of it because it sounds kind of trite, but ultimately, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the principle. Any thoughts or comments along the way, please jump in. Uh, let's go on to 1695, if somebody wants to read it.
2: I'll read it okay. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, sanctified and called to be saints, Christians have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Son teaches them to pray to the Father, and having become their life, prompts them to act so as to bear the fruits of the Spirit by charity and action. Healing the wounds of sin, Holy Spirit renews us interiorly through a spiritual transformation. He enlightens and strengthens us to live as children of light through all that is good and right through.
0: Temples of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's interesting, multiple things the Spirit's doing. First, healing us of, of the wounds of sin, which we all have, and then Renewing us so that we can be transformed. Yeah, it's it's amazing how f- how seldom we hear about the Holy Spirit preached. Um, mm-hmm. It's just kind of one of those underworked muscles in the church. Uh, and, well, and some there's exceptions, of course, like Franciscan University. They talk about it a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> you really couldn't talk about it too much, I don't think, in the right way, you know. Um, okay. Question, or do you want to continue? What does it mean to be children of light? I just want to... Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. That's, they're quoting there from um, one of the passages here, huh? Ephesians? Ephesians 5, which is kind of one of these key passages in Paul's writing. Um, you could say that this whole set, third section of the Catechism defines what it means to be children of child of light, but um, let's just take a quick look at that passage. Ephesians 5. What verse is it? I think it? it's
4: actually 19, isn't it? I mean, I think it, it's actually...
5: Oh, go ahead and read Oh, never it mind. I don't no, know. No. Oh. Yeah,
4: you're right. E- Ephesians 5,
0: 8 and 9. Verse 8. and nope, I'm revealing my Catholicism. I'm having a hard time locating. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians 5, uh, what verse? <laughs> 8 and 9. 8 and 9, okay. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. And the footnote says, let's see, I guess it's just referencing other passages. Um, it's it, backing up a little bit, it says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. So do not be associated with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness. Rather, expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret. Because that means no more entertainment tonight. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and this is a quote from some ancient liturgy or something, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So watch carefully then how you live, not as foolish persons, but as wise, (coughs) making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not continue in ignorance, but try to understand what is the will of the Lord. So that's um, that's really what the third part of the catechism is about: is getting the knowledge. Not that the knowledge is enough, but the knowledge gives you the information you need to then be responding with the wisdom and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's another symbol from the Easter vigil: is you receive a candle when the, the baptized come out, they receive a candle, and that's the whole thing. You've passed out of darkness into light. Darkness representing sin, evil and just being without proper bearings you can't, don't know the right way
4: I think of innocence too, you know like, like children. children children, innocence and just being children of innocence not being children of ignorance or children of naivete mm. but, yeah. but children of innocence meaning that you're really striving to be uh, pure and um, completely dependent on the Lord and being a light and beacon to all the people around you Uh, in that way.
0: Clever as serpents and innocent as doves.
4: Exactly, yeah, kind of that. At least that's what I think of when I think of children of light.
0: Anybody else? Anything else, other insights on that? I personally get hung up with the song, which I really do not care for. I want to walk as a child of light, but we won't go there. I don't know, it's probably Marty Hopin.
4: I don't think I know that song. Oh, you I do, do. I probably know you, probably you do. Probably r- <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's not an accusation. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm freaking sure
4: out. Know I think of a praise and worship song when I think of that song, okay. so Perfect. I don't know. It's different. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Distraction. Okay. Um, 1690. Who are
2: we singing that for our closing today or no?
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, we could get some souls on the with that one. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of suffering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right,
4: 1696. It is Lent, after all. Oh, it is. It is. But
0: Sunday is supposed to be the day after. I really object to it being sung at Mass.
5: Um,
0: The way of Christ leads to life. A a contrary way leads to destruction. The gospel parable of the two ways remains ever-present in the catechesis of the Church. It shows the importance of moral decisions for our salvation. There are two ways, the one of life, the other of death. But between the two, there is a great difference. And I think they're referencing the Didache there. The Didache is, is, is one of the earliest teachings, and it's it's all about the two ways. It's like, do this and not do that. Um, and there's a lot of content in terms of what things are are considered good and, and not good, but uh, that's what they're referring back to. And it's really, um, if you think about it, we wouldn't have anything to do here in Hollywood if this were not true. Because mm-hmm. you don't have any drama if there's no decisions to be made. Mm-hmm. Nothing's at stake. Who's interested in watching a drama in which there's nothing at stake a decision doesn't matter um, so as Christians I think we, we owe it to, to make that very clear the, 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 the height of drama is, the, is this moral choice that we're facing at every moment before us, our paths of life and death and every moment our decision matters eternally That's, that was my primary beef with this will be blood and this is my own commentary but I didn't feel like that had a true moral vision it's like oh these people are the way they are but I don't see them choosing, I just see them re- reacting, responding, kind of reflex- reflexive responses or habits of acting. Like, well, okay, that, that's true, but where, where are the decisions? I'm not really interested unless I can see that they have to choose something. Mm-hmm. And if we watch, I think we will watch Jesse James next week, but it's really clear at every moment mm-hmm. the choices Robert Ford has made, up until the very last line the narrator says as the screen goes dark. It's mm-hmm. like, he's about to die. And and there's there's a choice being offered right then. It makes the movie so gripping. It's two and a half hours long. But it's like it just it's it's just unrelenting. You just see his moral choices and and, and the devastating consequences. Um. Okay, uh, catechesis then. So now that we're convinced that there are two ways, we need to know what the two ways are, and that's where catechesis comes in. 1697. Catechesis has to reveal in all clarity the joy and the demands of the way of Christ. Catechesis for the newness of life in him should be, first of all, a catechesis of the Holy Spirit, the interior master of life according to Christ, a gentle guest and friend who inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens this life. A catechesis of grace, for it is by grace that we are saved, and again it is by grace that our works can bear fruit for eternal life. A catechesis of the Beatitudes, going back to our first class, for the way of Christ is summed up in the Beatitudes, the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude for which the human heart longs. Another setup for Jesse James, is there's a a scene where the Beatitudes are are read aloud at a funeral. It's just really intense. Um, A catechesis of sin and forgiveness. For unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly. And without the offer of forgiveness, he would, not even, he would not be able to bear this truth. A catechesis of the human virtues, which cause one to grasp the beauty and the attraction of right dispositions toward goodness. A catechesis of the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity, generously inspired by the example of the saints. A catechesis of the twofold commandment of charity set forth in the Decalogue, And by that, they're referring to love of God, love of neighbor. (coughs) Uh, and ecclesial catechesis. For it is through the manifold exchanges of spiritual goods in the communion of saints that Christian life can grow, develop, and be communicated. So, a clear focus on God's activity in the moral life first. The Holy Spirit. Grace. And then the teaching of Christ. And mercy, because it's not like uh, it's not a once-for-all type of thing. We're constantly needing to correct our course. Uh, and interesting that you can't even act justly unless you know you're a sinner. Hmm.
5: Does
0: that make sense? Trying to unpack that a little bit. I never thought about that. Where is The, the bottom of our, it's the last. It's right. Oh. A catechesis of sin and forgiveness, when it talks about. Unless man acknowledges he is a sinner, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly. Mm.
5: Hmm.
6: A lot of the uh, films coming out lately have been kind of this message that you only act for selfish purposes. I wonder if that has anything.
0: Hmm. Oh. Yeah.
6: Interesting. yeah no, you're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah because yeah, if you're not living in justice interiorly, which is basically that's Augustine's concept is that when you're living the life of grace, all of your passions and all your desires, your appetites, intellect, will, memory, all those faculties too are in order. Everything's working properly. And um, if something throws a rod or goes, you know, blows a spring or whatever, the whole thing kind of falls apart. It's a disintegration of the person. And this language in the Catechism in certain places about disorder. Um, and that's kind of the experience of sin, is, is not having everything lined up. The original sin caused the faculties to kind of get out of whack. And so we're, we've, we still have that inheritance. But uh, So we need the grace so that we can start putting everything in its proper place. And that's what justice is, is everything in its place.
4: You cannot get what you can, do not have. Right. Kind of
0: that. Right. No. And that's been the danger in certain circles of the church, especially since... 60s, it's sort of been like, we've gotten really fond of the idea of what's called institutional or social sin, like structures of sin, like the sinful corporation, this X, Y, or Z. Um, and you'll see that in Hollywood movies a lot, too. It's like, if we can just uncover the conspiracy of the pharmaceutical industry, or whatever it is, it's like, oh, that's not really redemption. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very convenient, because you get to point the finger at everything outside of yourself, but but you know, conver- the church is very clear that Structures of sin are only come about in the world because of personal sin. It's a collection of the sins of individuals. It's not like some amorphous sin just drops on, on us. <laughs> <laughs> like No, no, no. We all have to take responsibility for our own sin, and then we can overcome those structures. Mm. Uh, virtues. Okay, the church is going to offer this great wisdom about just the habits of life, just on a human level, things we can do to dispose us to grace. You know, if there's some particular thing, you know, that causes us to sin, we know it. We know we always drive through a certain neighborhood on the way home from work, and it's always a temptation to X, Y, or Z. Well, you know, you don't have to drive down that street. Drive down another street. So it's just the human wisdom that um, we're talking about with the human virtues. Um, a catechist on the Christ- Christian virtues, so we're talking about theological virtues, then the faith, hope, and charity, um, which are the things that we lose when we sin gravely. And that's what the sacrament of reconciliation restores to us of it. The supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and love. Um, the two dimensions of, of, of the moral life are how, how's my relationship with God, and how's my relationship with my neighbor. That's the twofold commandment of charity. The first three commandments dealing with relationship with God, the remainder with our, our relation with our neighbor, and then the, the, the catechesis in the church. Uh, and then it just sum, sums it all up It says, the first and last point of reference of this catechesis will always be Jesus Christ himself. So our standard isn't like this prescription. Or Some people get into a real legalism, and they're like, you know, you can just see it. Some people, the way they ask about questions about what the church teaches, it's this kind of pharisaical casuistry where it's like, well, but what about this principle in relation to this one, and how do we balance those out? It's like, you know what? Let's just go back to the source here for a moment. Let's be a little bit more radical in our evaluation, meaning going back to the root, which is Jesus Christ. Our, our model is not a principle, it's a person. Uh, we contemplate the face of Christ, and in him we find the answer to every moral question. We can't take the easy route out and say, well, I'm going to hide behind this law or that thought. No. Everything has to stand in confrontation with the face of Christ. We talk somewhere about here about his countenance that way. Um, anyway... It is by looking to him in faith that Christ's faithful can hope that he himself fulfills his promises in them and that by loving him with the same love which, with, with which he has loved them, they may perform works in keeping with their dignity. I ask you to consider that our Lord Jesus Christ is your true head and that you are one of his members. He belongs to you as the head belongs to its members. All that is his is yours his spirit, his heart, his body and soul, and all his faculties. You must make use of all these things as of your own, to serve, praise, love, and glorify God. You belong to him as members belong to their head. And so he longs for you to use all that is in you, as if it were his own, for the service and glory of the Father. For to me to live is Christ. St. John Eudes, and it's also from one of the letters, Philemon, I think. So it's a beautiful vision for the moral life, I think. It's, it's, it just kind of sets it up to get us past the, just the vision of it being a bunch of do's and don'ts, and I think people get really hung up on the word even. The word sin, I think, is so loaded for some people, maybe because of the way people have used it or leveraged it against other people, but. Sin is, the, the term itself is just a very basic word, and I think there's a section here on sin, but, and I, you guys have probably covered this, but what does the word sin literally mean? Without. Without. It's that sense, and it's also the sense of, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's missing, or the Greek concept of hamartia is missing the mark. It's that simple. I think we get all this baggage attached, to like, oh, I'm a bad person. It's like, no, we missed the mark. <laughs> We're creatures. We don't always get it right. We have an inheritance of original sin. We're missing the mark all the time. We're not hitting right on target. And um, rather than being ashamed and paralyzed by it, it's like, no, what a, what a grace to know what sin is so that we can get up with the grace of God and and try to hit the mark again. God willing, one day we'll, we'll hit it perfectly. But um, You know, it's interesting. To paralyzed I, by that.
4: I took a, a class in in Rome with uh, Father Paul Murray, who was a spiritual director for Mother Teresa for two years and was a spiritual advisor for Jim Kinbizel, apparently, during the passion. Mm. Uh, But it was so cool because I got to audit his class on spiritual theology and he mentioned this in one of the classes and it stuck with me ever since that the saints, when they were, you know, they they lived saintly lives but they still weren't perfect, so uh, they were saints in, in in the whole, but they weren't saints every day. It was kind of like one of those things where uh, they still lived human lives. There are still moments, you know. Even Mother Teresa had a bad day. Even John Paul II, you know, there's uh, they're still human. And mm. I just think this is really cool and really important to remember too that there is no perfect human being except Christ and Blessed Mother. Yeah. So if, yeah. if you, uh,
0: and really, yeah. It's just really yeah. It's really to get discouraged about one's weaknesses. It's just um, it's the worst thing you can do because um, yes. it's just the sin of despair, which is the pride of I was going to make this happen. I was going to do. I, I should be performing perfectly at every moment of my life. It's like no, you are a creature. You have inheritance of the original sin. And the I think it's also how Satan works on you too, just yeah. like
4: the father of lies of being. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you are a sinner, man. You, you are a Ye- sinner, man. You. Well, that's, that's, the, like that's, 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 that,
0: that's for sure that Satan's title, um, yeah. in the book of Job is Satan, and that means literally the accuser, someone who accuses us, and who also identifies us, ourselves, identifies us with, with our sinful actions. Mm-hmm. It's like, the Holy Spirit never does that. There's always a very clear thing. This is sin. This is you as a child of God. Those are two distinct things. Not you are your sin. That's. That's, yeah, that's the accuser, for sure. And that's a beautiful thing about the, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is it's the advocate. So you've got the accuser, you've got the advocate. And confession is kind of like that court of law where, where <laughs> you, everything's laid out on, on the table, the accuser's sitting there, <laughs> pounding at you still, but you've got the advocate, you've got your lawyer there. What happens to that be the second person the, the third person of the <laughs> attorney, which is rather helpful? <laughs> you got to get an attorney, <laughs> <or> a lawyer. <laughs> Go for the paraclete, yeah. That's what I <laughs> that
6: would do. That, uh makes a lot of sense and kind of shows why I think the theology of, the, of total depravity really messes with people.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
5: theology of total
6: depravity? It's like, it's one of the things of Calvinism where I knew a lot of people that believed it and they feel like they have to have this really strong sense of guilt and oppression about their sin. It's, they just, it starts really messing with them. hmm and their kid, like their kids won't have that sense, you know, they've never had like some of these kids would grow up in these perfect environments. They had no real big opportunities for huge sins. Mm-hmm. And so they never felt this huge <laughs> guilt and sure. um, so they would never allow their kids to have communion or anything. So Wow,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole vision. So it's
6: basically knowing God and loving God is a guilt. Wow. It's mm-hmm. just it's pretty,
0: it's nasty. That's pretty, yeah, profound in terms of the consequences if you live with that vision, you know. Because really then God isn't generous, you know, it's yeah. God's stingy with grace and, you know.
4: It's, it's pretty hard to be cheerful with that set of minds, Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah, it's a difficult anthropology to live. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh,
4: But when you look at the saints, I mean, you always hear stories of them being cheerful and bubbly and, you know, that they were never...
6: Chesterton, for instance.
0: Chesterton's in my head. <laughs> <laughs> he's a shame, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's out of control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on that 1st get the opening section.
1: Oh, um, no, just in that part that you just read, mm-hmm. it seems like um, there's a lot there on like, the theology of the body.
0: Tons. It's loaded. Okay. Yeah.
1: Because I was reading an article and um, i magazine. My aunt sent me Envoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it was. I don't even. I was gonna bring it, because it had a whole huge article on the theology body, and then a whole huge ar- article on Lumen Gentium. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Gentium? What we just
0: read on the church. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which yep. really unpacked a lot of what, or echoed a lot of what we've been talking. About.
0: I, I should bring. It after Lumen Absolutely. Lumen. And the reason that you're seeing all the echoes in there is because um, John Paul II was a cardinal at the time, and he helped draft it. Lumen Gentium. so it was kind of the first inklings of what he was going to do when he became Pope so he just like unpacked Lumen Gentium and his pontificate and he's like we're going to do 129 audiences unpacking <laughs> oh, okay. what this means for married life and <laughs> for celibacy and for the whole thing yeah mm-hmm. it's huge it's really we probably I don't even have that on schedule Patrick Kaufman when he does class on marriage is going to maybe briefly touch on theology of the body but I think we need to get Bar- Margaret Adams in here at some point mm. and just what is theology of the body um there's even a book called Theology of the Body for Beginners, which Christopher West actually is going to be a good book. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's a science. So.
4: TOB for dummies.
0: <laughs> hey, I'm all for it. John Paul is pretty dense. <laughs> <laughs> Not <laughs> easy to read.
5: I'm sure the <laughs> yeah. I, I okay. saw there probably is. There's,
0: there's a yeah. book, Catholics
6: for Dummies. Yeah. yeah
5: so
6: <laughs> so <funny. laughs> Those books are so 90s.
5: <laughs> 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 That's funny. That's funny. Right.
6: Realizing, those things are about to go out, I think.
5: <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. It's possible. Yeah,
0: I know. Well, there it is. There's a Calvinist. Like, I'm not a dummy. It's a <laughs> word, <laughs> <to learn, laughs> that's all. Yeah, <laughs> dummy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's in our culture. It's deep. Because yeah. <laughs> we, we, we have to, always remember, we're not living in a Catholic culture. We're not living in, in a primarily Christian culture.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Its roots are in Puritanism, and that's a real dualistic vision of the person. There's evil and matter like. Married together, depravity is big there, mm. and and if somebody looks good, it's just a matter of looking around long enough till we can find that fault and uncovering it. We love conspiracies. Um, anyway, that's my beef. Okay, <laughs> <Hey>, next section. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm going to stop because Barbara doesn't normally do this. She doesn't usually go paragraph by paragraph. I'm just doing because I'm not well prepared. <laughs> so I tell me if you want to do a different approach, because I can I can we can start hitting highlights. Um, I did that handout for you too, um, which is really the things I felt were most important in this whole first section um, on catechism and the moral life. So I called out some paragraphs. Maybe what we'll do is maybe I'll just go over these at a high level and then we can go back to reading as much as we can in the next twenty minutes or whatever. Um, big themes in here, um, 1729, the vision here is um, that we're setting up is that the moral life is, is really about the fact that our life is like, ah, uh, it's a journey, you know, it's just like Lord of the Rings is a great kind of setup for this, the whole idea, is there's a goal in mind, and what's the goal of the moral life? It's not, you know, it's nothing in this life, it's beatitude, it's life in heaven, it's life with God, so everything we're doing is, is setting up, it's all about that goal. And so it's like the moral life is our map. The commandments are like our our, our signpost on that map. It's like, how are we going to get to that goal of the other side, Beatitude? And so we're just studying the map so that we're able to get there. And the big vision is we're called to heaven. Every human person, I think, is pretty adamant about that too in here. That essay I gave you, The Weight of Glory, kind of unpacks that too. It's like every person is called to Beatitude. Um. Yes, and then uh, so that's that's there's a whole section on that. The beauty of this is, um, as you go forward and, and you're like out in the world dealing with people who are not Christians, or might even have a lot of concern about you as a Christian coming to them and laying down the book on them or whatever. The vision of the church is that the commandments are for everyone. This is not if if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really am upset that the church teaches that contraception is wrong or that. You know, homosexuality is homosexual activity is wrong. Whatever it is, um, why does the church have to sit out there in the culture and propose this to us and tell us the church's morals must apply to us? I'm, like, I'm not a Catholic. Don't tell me what to do. And, and the vision of the church is, well, this isn't. We're not talking about something that's in the creed. This, the commandments are simply, they they're God's instructions about how to live as a human being. So it applies to everybody. It doesn't regard is Muslim, Jewish atheists, whatever. fact is we can't escape our humanity, and we weren't made by ourselves, we were made by God. So he kind of knows the instruction manual for how this thing works, called our humanity, mm-hmm. and um, uh, there's, there's a positive way to phrase that for them, that was kind of snarky. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the point is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a universal thing, it's not just for Catholics, not just for Christians. Um, yeah. And so, when it talks about vocation of beatitude, it just kind of Here's the beauty. We've we got to look at a couple of these paragraphs. Vocation to Beatitude, um, 1717. The Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ and portray his charity. They express the vocation of the faithful associated with the glory of his passion and resurrection. They shed light on the actions and attitudes characteristic of the Christian life. They are the paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulation. They proclaim the blessings and rewards already secured for Christ's disciples. So that's the Beatitudes, clearly a Christian vision for a way to live. But then the Catechism kind of backs up and says, the desire for happiness, okay, what's this? Here, now we're getting to something that is universal. And you could talk to an atheist on the street and they'd, they'd buy this. The Beatitudes respond to something that's in every human heart. The Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it. We all want to live happily. In the whole human race, there is no one who does not assent to this proposition even before it is fully articulated. How is it then that I seek you, Lord? Lord, since in seeking you, my God, I seek a happy life. let me seek you so that my soul may live for my body draws life from my soul, and my soul draws life from you and then finally, I think it's Teresa a little flower God or maybe it's trees of battle God alone satisfies so that's that's the beauty of the church's teaching. It's like you start with people where they're at, they desire happiness and they just kind of try and pack it. what's that about like why do you desire happiness? And if they're a true nihilist, they'll probably play games with you and say, oh, I really don't want to be happy. <laughs> then you're in trouble, because <laughs> then they're just not being honest with themselves. But, you know, most people, I think, are ready to assent at least to that, that they're seeking happiness, and they, they're seeking the good. They may, you know, make lots of bad decisions along that way, but undeniable principle is that whenever they acted, they were choosing what they perceived to be good. You know, they just have to unpack why it's not a good.
5: Have we gone through
1: the, the Beatitudes? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think that was maybe, I wasn't here, but it was first class probably. Yeah, one of the first.
1: Oh, okay, good, good,
0: Uh Good. okay, good. Uh, And so then it says, the Beatitudes reveal the goal of human existence, (laughs) the ultimate end of human acts. God calls us to his own Beatitude. This vocation is addressed to each individual personally, but also to the church as a whole. The new people made up of those who have accepted the promise and live from it in faith. And then it kind of unpacks, well, what do we mean by the attitude? Are we talking about, like, harps and chocolate or, you know?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and the Jehovah's Witnesses used to come to my house all the time, and they have these brochures, and they've got all these drawings of having It always just irked me. I'm like, mm-hmm. I I don't, I, yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's
0: sitting <laughs> with there the with animals, these.
5: Like all the animals. Yeah, the animals.
0: They're like the hippopotamus is, like, snuggling up to the <laughs> woman. I was like.
5: <laughs> that's not my vision of heaven, all right?
0: The more human that's the thing, the more human things you choose to populate your vision with heaven with, the more it's gonna be just the vision you have and not, you know, appealing to anybody else. So you really all that human <laughs> stuff, you just <laughs> got to Yeah there
5: will be copies. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there will be copies. There will be an iPhone, I know. I know. I'll have to give up God for my iPhone, but I think I'm willing. <laughs> <laughs> Is there <a> chocolate? What? <laughs> But it's it's no, the thing. Chocolates with, definitely. It's <laughs> an assembly and plant. It's amazing, and we do that in our music and everything at Mass. And it's really the problem of bringing all that human stuff into music and the liturgy is like, you know what? You're just as soon as you start to put in that human stuff, you're going to be talking about and speaking to certain people in that assembly and not to others. You have to really be careful about that kind of stuff. Because I mean, con- that's a discipline of common prayers. You have to be aware that it's not just your prayer; it's the prayer of the whole assembly, and it can't be scandalizing or stumbling block to your neighbor and be, you know, good worship. just everywhere, yeah. listen to me. Back
4: <laughs> <laughs> no. at St. Thomas, there was this, there was the uh, one of the opening hymns that they would sing every once in a while, but it, it, it literally had test tubes. That's one of the things, <laughs> it was like, let, let the test tubes in the science lab, praise the Lord. It was just like so awful. Oh, I don't even remember. and, and I blocked it from my memory, but
0: Yeah, that's a whole concept We in
4: campus ministry used to have a good laugh about that because... Which is funny because the music part is like part of campus ministry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, uh... Yes, indeed. Those of us who couldn't do anything about it, we would laugh. And uh, cringe
5: at the same time.
0: Yeah, the whole sense of what what holy is and what sacred is means set apart, you know. And um, some people think holiness is, well, let's just gather everything and throw holy water and everything. Everything's holy now. It's like... You don't realize what a logical mistake you just made. You said everything is holy. You said the things that are set apart are everything. How do you divide something and then still say, put it aside and say that's everything? It's a logical problem there. So the sacred, the holy is what's set apart. What's set apart for God? And everything in the liturgy is supposed to be that. The music we hear, it's not, oh, that isn't like, you know, that sounds like a song from Rent I heard last week. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not sacred. It's beautiful. It might lead your heart and mind to God, but it's not sacred. The liturgy is for the sacred. So,
5: Jesus Christ superstar.
0: Yeah, great. It, it can be perfectly edifying anywhere else, but Jesus at Mass. Christ,
5: superstar.
6: <laughs> <laughs> can we
4: have a theme? I think we should have a theme song for, the, for our RCI class, and that should be it.
0: Right. Let's see if I can get myself Throw
4: in the jazz haze with it Let's see if
0: I can discipline my own self here and we can get through this section (laughs) All right, Christian Beatitude Okay, what are we talking about? If we're not talking about hippopotamuses It's snuggling up to us 1720 The New (laughs) Testament uses several expressions to characterize the Beatitude to which God calls man Uh, The coming of the kingdom of God The vision of God Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God Entering into the joy of the Lord, entering into God's rest. And then it quotes from Augustine. There we shall rest and see. We shall see and love. We shall love and praise. Behold what we will be at the end without end. For what other end do we have if not to reach the kingdom which has no end? God put us in the world to know, to love and to serve him, and so to come to paradise. That's really just a reformulation. You may hear people talk about the Baltimore Catechism. That was like, it was Q&A format. That was the question is, you know, why are we here? And that's the answer. To know, to love, and to serve him, and, and to enjoy him in, in this life and in the next. Beatitude makes us partakers of the divine nature, so we actually share God's life and of eternal life. With beatitude, man enters into the glory of Christ and into the joy of the Trinitarian life. Such beatitude surpasses the understanding and the powers of man. It comes from an entirely free gift of God, whence it is called supernatural, as the grace that disposes man to enter into the light, divine joy. As is the grace that disposes man to enter into the divine joy. And now we got St. Irenaeus here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is true because of the greatness and inexpressible glory of God that man shall not see me and live for the father cannot be grasped but because of God's love and goodness toward us and because he can do all things he goes so far as to grant those who love him the privilege of seeing him for what is impossible for men is possible for God so even our moral life all our good decisions uh, it's all God we can't really claim any of them for ourselves so, The foundation of humility is just knowing that you know it's it's, our good works are not our own the only thing we really have can properly call our own is our sin Uh, God God is God's not responsible for that part Uh, 1723 the beatitude we are promised confronts us with decisive moral choices here we go back to the kind of the drama of human existence it invites us to purify our hearts of bad instincts and to seek the love of God above all else. It teaches us that true happiness is not found in riches or well-being, in human fame or power, or in any human achievement, however beneficial it may be, such as science, test tubes, technology and art, (laughs) or indeed in any creature, but in God alone the source... Wait a
4: minute, that's not in there!
0: Science is there! It's implied! (laughs) But in God alone, the source of every good and of all love, Oh, this is a great quote from um, Cardinal Newman, whose whose feast day is coming up this week, twenty first. Yeah, wait a minute. He's not a saint yet, though, is he? He's a blessed. Newman. Yeah, I think we're still preparing for his canonization. Mm. They're looking for a miracle. That's why we're praying for Paul using the novena, Cardinal Newman. So he's a blessed. Anyway, he's a brilliant man. Um, All bow down before wealth. Wealth is that to which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth, and by wealth they measure respectability. It is uh, an homage resulting from a profound faith that with wealth he may do all things. Wealth is one idol of the day, and notoriety is the second. Notoriety, or the making of a noise in the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it may be called newspaper fame, <laughs> has come to be considered a great good in itself and a ground of veneration. So, yeah, I, don't, I really have nothing to say about the past because it doesn't apply to us in Hollywood at all. It always has.
6: It's actually only cheapened <laughs> since what it used to be. Exactly, exactly. People it's used always to been want there. To die in battle for.
0: Exactly, yeah. absolutely. Saint John Vianney was a uh, it's a patron saint of parish priests. He was in France. I think, right after the French Revolution when the church was being persecuted. But he, he had this great quote where he said, um, Don't make your name known in the newspapers. Don't make your face known, known in the newspapers. Make your face known before the tabernacle. That's, that's the whole point is, you know, who are we trying to please? Uh, the Decalogue, meaning the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Apostolic Catechesis. These three things describe for us the paths that lead to the kingdom of heaven. Sustained by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we tread them step by step by everyday acts. By the working of the word of Christ, we slowly, slowly bear fruit in the church to the glory of God. And they reference the parable of the sower there. The seeds falling on different kinds of ground.
1: What, what do they consider the apostolic catechesis? Yeah,
0: that would be the teaching of the apostles. Oh, so everything that, okay. that Christ said that didn't get written down, that's mm-hmm. part of that deposit of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any questions, though, or comments, anything you want to raise out of this section? The in-brief section, as you probably know in the Catechism, it's just a summary of, of what we kind of un- unpacked. Uh, Okay. So now that we've got the bigger vision, we can get down to the task of discernment. You know, what's going to get me to beatitude is the ultimate question. Uh, And so we have to engage our freedom to make choices. And you also, did you guys have a class on freedom? Yeah. So I'm sure you had this assignment. This reading was probably already given to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Highlights of it I put on the sheet. Um, The key thing in this passage is the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. It's the principle of freedom. People get confused. People confuse freedom and liberty. Not the same thing. Liberty is the capacity to act in any way one chooses. Um, freedom is the ability to choose to do it. So anything else is not really true freedom. It's, it's liberty. Well, fine, liberty is fine. But the problem is, you know, the, the wrong use of your liberty leads you to hell. so liberty in itself you know neutral Uh, freedom not neutral freedom is a good because it's that capacity to choose what is good Hmm. and the more you choose the good the more free you become to choose greater goods Um, what what did you say liberty was the the capacity to choose the capacity to decide and to act in any way one one chooses it's that it's that ability it's like um, uh Let's say that you are in prison. Okay, so you you don't have the liberty to walk to the convenience store and you know
5: mm-hmm.
0: shop. Okay, that's basic liberty. You you don't have a you can't do that. Um, your liberty has been taken away, but you're stuck in that prison cell. None of your freedom has been taken away.
5: Mm.
0: Nobody can rem- remove your freedom from you. Uh, you know you you could you could choose to. You've got a, a soldier who is manning the gate. is real pain. You could be angry. You could be hateful. You could be vengeful toward that person. Well, that's that's just the wrong use of your liberty. Uh, you, you you're choosing something that's not. You're not free when you're you're vengeful, spiteful, or designing to kill the guard. If you choose to evangelize a guard, whatever, uh, make sacrifices for the guard. Blah blah blah. blah mm-hmm. Those would be you're becoming more free actually, even though you're contained in prison your freedom is actually growing I
3: just met someone named Liberty mm. so I was
5: wondering why nobody's named Freedom since it's actually
3: better than Liberty <laughs> well
4: th- yeah is there any anybody named Freedom like it's just okay. not a name <laughs> no but I think <laughs> I'm going to make that my uh Hollywood name what do
5: you think wait there yeah. is a yeah. freedom <laughs> freedom
2: that dude <laughs> the guy who sings in <laughs> the CNC music factory his he name is Freedom Rose <laughs>
3: See, I'm glad I
5: know that. C&C Music Factory. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> freedom Williams, that's his name. That's that's awesome. Awesome.
4: Can you imagine a fan being like, Freedom! <laughs> 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 great, I,
5: mean, I think it's a cool name. I think it's. A
3: that's a really cool, cool name. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's that cool name. Save <laughs> <laughs> name. <laughs> when your awesome. album comes out. My well, you might get
5: sued from C&C Music Factory.
3: Yeah, but not Freedom Williams. Well, call I wouldn't call it. be Freedom oh, Williams. Sh- should you should
0: be called Freedom Williams. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, sorry let's go back to
0: <laughs> I should it's, yeah, it's an interesting um, point to make in an election year to just to watch the rhetoric of the different candidates um you know, our, our founding fathers you know had a, a pretty pretty profound vision of of the human person you know, for all its flaws but uh, you know the concept of liberty liberty's important it's very important um but uh more important even than that is, is freedom and did you guys read um Man Search for Me? Is that a sign to you? Yeah. I mean, or assigned. On. But that was kind of the core concept of coming out of that book is, you know, he was in the Nazi concentration camps. Um, but he saw people choosing the good, choosing to take the little portion they were given and share it with somebody who was elderly who couldn't make it to the soup line or whatever. And so, it's, you know, even there, he, he realized people's freedom had not been taken away. They could take everything, they could get every liberty away from them, but they could not take away the freedom. Okay. Um okay. And then it, it's wow, well, there's a lot of stuff here. Maybe we'll just go through seventeen thirty eight and we'll we'll stop there. Um every act Well, maybe you guys talked about this. just tell me what you guys covered here. Did you talk about directly, indirectly, voluntary, all that good stuff?
1: Well we covered this whole section. Oh actually. cool. Yeah. Awesome. We I mean, have notes all through it, so i guess you we really covered it. Yep.
0: Imputability, <laughs> did you talk about that? The idea of you know, you can do something wrong, but it's not imputed to you. It's not, it's not like assigned to you as, as something that you are personally responsible for. That's the concept they're trying to get to here. Your responsibility, do, you can do a terrible act, but you may be less guilty for it if, you, if certain factors are, are there. Like you don't know. If you don't know it's wrong, you can't be held but responsible for it in the same way. So it talks about all those things that mitigate your responsibility. Um, it's important especially when you come to confession because um, you're really t- trying to get to the voluntary stuff because that's where your freedom is in action but uh, that's
4: where well, I'm just thinking of an example
0: mm-hmm. let's say a woman has an abortion and really right, she's, she's, a- she's, she's never been raised in the church it's completely off her radar exactly what she's doing
5: mm-hmm.
0: um, obviously what's done is gravely sinful in every situation never right to t- kill the child but she may not be she may not be in a state of mortal sin because she didn't understand it to be, you know, that would be an example.
1: If, and it could be a situation, too, where, like, I had a client who just was 14 and her father forced her. There it is. There's the she conditions.
0: She did not want it. Remember, it's mm-hmm. it's knowledge, what you know. It's, it's your will, in this case. That would be the issue. It wasn't freely chosen. And then it has to be grave matter. Grave matter's there, but the other two things are in question, for sure. She was forced to. It definitely wasn't grave matter. So it's grave a grave sin? sin? It's the yeah. sin itself. Yeah, the sin is there. The sin the is sin there, is but whether it's imputed to her, oh. whether whether on her soul it causes a loss of grace. it probably be more on her imputed father her.
4: in this case,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. Commission and sin is serious business.
4: And that's just why, when you see that, that's why <coughs> being a priest or being even a parent is, so, is such a huge commitment. Because if you happen to make your child go astray, mm-hmm. or as a priest, you make your parishioners go astray because you're not telling them mm-hmm. everything they need to know or teaching them everything they need to know, mm-hmm. there's such a grave. That's, you know, that's, that's a very serious matter that they'll have to personally come to God for.
0: Yep. Uh, when you did this class on freedom, did you guys get into Article 4? It starts at 1749. The morality of human acts. Mm -mm. Yeah, this stuff is pretty critical. Is it okay if we go over like five minutes, five, ten minutes? Mm -hmm. You guys all good, good on time? Okay, and we'll just cover this section because this is really important. The three sources of morality. Okay, and it's spelled out here starting in 1750. Uh, The setup is, you know, freedom makes man a moral subject. When he acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts. Human acts, that is, acts that are freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience, can be morally evaluated. So things that we t- freely choose. They are either good or evil. Now the sources of morality, three things, depend on three things. The morality of human acts depend on the object chosen, the end in view, or the intention, and the circumstances of the action. This is a little bit crude, but you could say it's the what, it's the why, and the how. The object chosen is the what. The end in view is the why. Like, what are we aiming at? The circumstances are the how or the context. What, what things surround it? So when you go to confession, a good confessor is going to look at these three things. And, and if they ask you questions, it's probably just try to flesh out your responsibility based on these three things. Did you really choose that? Was that what you intended? And what were the circumstances around it? Um, the sources of the morality of human acts. So, 1751, okay, the object chosen. Um, it's a good toward which the will deliberately directs itself. That's the key thing here. A good toward which the will deliberately directs itself. And Barbara's going to talk more about this when we get into really difficult moral questions, uh, where, like, the life of a mother is in danger by doing a certain surgery. Um, you know, it might, it might kill the child. That's not the intention of the surgery. It's to save the mother's life. So that's where it becomes important. What were you actually choosing to do when you did that surgery? Was it an abortion or was it trying to save the mother's life?
4: Or in the case of voting, since voting is coming up too. Yeah. Like where you're, uh, you know, it's in the case of several instances usually trying to choose the lesser good okay. or the lesser evil dude i'm kicked wow. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. wow okay come november we're <laughs> going to have <laughs> the end of the brain <laughs> <laughs> i thought i was supposed <laughs> to choose the lesser good <laughs> okay there's
4: not many of those to choose from. So. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> the lesser evil uh. yeah. oh my goodness <laughs> no. shamed for life we um I'm <laughs> losing my train of thought. But so, if, if so choosing the lesser evil with uh, with voting and yeah. uh, and that it's if not your fault. It, I mean, you're not your intention if you choose a pro a pro-abortion president. Yes. Uh,
2: pro-choice president. Pro-choice. Thank you,
4: pro-choice president. But your intention is not to do it because he's pro-choice. Your intention is to do it because he's, you know, everything else. The lesser everything the evil. Everything else. Yeah. Right, like you, you know, he's globalization. Whatever. Yeah.
5: No. Right <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can see everybody. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, he, so, in this case, that was a it, great point.
4: He, as in man, humanity, can he.
0: <laughs> so, Let's just say it, keep totally it okay. care. Oh you keep Oh, Okay, that's, that's <laughs> good to know,
2: though. So, if you truly feel like, if okay, you can vote for someone who's pro choice, but however, you feel that in the overall big picture, he's going to do more good. The country. Right.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a discernment. It is. It and, is. And um, yeah. in a couple of weeks, um, there's a day where these two guys are coming in from Notre Dame to teach the class, and they're going to be addressing some of the stuff. They're going to talk on ethics and culture. Uh, mm-hmm. So that should be really good. Okay. And we're going to be reading from um, the other big, not a doctrinal, co- uh, not a dogmatic constitution from that it can do, but a pastoral one called Gaudium et Spes, Joy and Hope. And uh, they kind of look at the modern world and the big... Ethical questions facing it, so that's going to be the text that we read. But uh, when, when is um, that one? they are coming on March. Hmm. Well, I want to say the fifth, but that's not right. I don't think. Um, no, not the fifth. The ninth, Catholic social <laughs> teaching, bioethics, life issues, and double effect. And Barbara's I'm sure, going to want to participate too pick on, on those items as well.
4: That's exciting.
0: Yeah. we yeah. really, are the guys? really coming? good. Um, there are two, uh, what are their names? I'm so embarrassed because they're probably listening to this. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they don't even know yet that we've assigned this topic to them, but I saw their background. I'm like, this is perfect. Oh, okay. Um, Dr. Daniel McInerney, I believe, mm-hmm. and the other guy.
5: Holly? Oh, Michael. Oh, yeah. Dr. Michael.
0: So, we're really fortunate to have them coming. They're doing a whole afternoon here, too, Mm -hmm. um, on something about the uh, Christian art in an apocalyptic age or whatever. Oh,
5: -hmm. um, that's them. So, it
0: Mm -hmm. should be a good day. Okay, so that's the object chosen. Um, The end in view is the second part, 1752. And basically, what we're talking about there, this resides in the person, in the acting subject. You know what did that person intend, and the the key thing is um, in 1753 it tells you um, the intention itself cannot justify an act that is already in itself wrong or disordered, and this is a problem that you see in a lot of contemporary moralities. Some some schools of philosophy that moral philosophy are like, hey, what did the person intend, it, and they'll make that the last word about whether something's right or wrong. It's like nope, you can what the intention can do is it can take um, an otherwise good act and it can make it bad but it can never turn an already bad act into something good. And it, like I can't say well I really wanted the best for this girl so I paid for an abortion. Sorry. The act was bad itself. Your intention notwithstanding um, sorry. Yeah. But you can ruin a good a good act by a bad intention. So the thing in itself might have been good but your intentions were bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like why. I gave her
2: money to help her, and she chose to get the abortion. Hmm.
5: Mm. <laughs> about that. If you didn't know she
1: was going to get the abortion.
5: Yeah. yeah, if you didn't know, right. gonna you know she was going to get the abortion. Give her money. So like yes, so there's a, a neutral act, act or good act actor
0: act 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 giving, giving her money. Bring in
2: some money to help you out to kind of get started, get what you need, right. Like Whatever. Right. You make a donation and then they spend right. the money on something. Else. Now you wouldn't, if
0: you didn't know. Again, you wouldn't be gravely responsible in that case I'm trying to think of another but example that's not
4: really yeah that's not a really uh, I uh, mean an
3: example of an intention making a good act bad yeah would be like like giving money to the church is a good act but if you did it intending uh-huh. to sin more because you figured that
0: could oh here's one to um, to the movie good. we're going to watch for next week Assassination of Jesse James Robert Ford I'm not spoiling anything. that's right in the title. <laughs> he assassinates <laughs> Jesse <laughs> James. Okay. La 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 la. Oh my God! <laughs> he dies. But you know, he he. You um, kind of expect. Okay, he does this thing where he, he betrays his friend. But you know, it's supposed to be good for society that Jesse James is out of commission. Um, but what you learn in the movie, of course, movie is Jesse James' inten- or Robert Ford's intentions are all messed up. So there's not a single pure intention in that act. You know, maybe the end result was, okay, we put this killer, Rufus' killer, to death, but um, it's really clear that he was, he was there for all the wrong reasons. Um, and the Murder in the Cathedral, uh, T.S. Eliot's play, there's a line in there, I don't know who says it, but it's, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's, I mean, that could be the mantra for Jesse James, it's like, Robert Ford is just, wow. He so wanted to be a hero. He so wanted the glory, and uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, like it's all of Jesus' <clears throat> temptations in the desert were all good things in themselves.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Um, okay. And then the last thing that affects uh, the moral goodness of an act: circumstances. Okay. These can. The key thing here is they can increase or diminish responsibility, but they can't change the quality of an act. Okay. So, you know, what, what, uh, let's see if they give an example. Oh, here, yeah, they do. They contribute to increasing or diminishing the moral goodness or evil. For example, the amount of a theft. Okay, if it's a significant amount. Of course, that's going to make it more weighty and either for good or for evil. They can also diminish or increase the agent's responsibility, such as acting out of a fear of death. Um, circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality They can neither make good nor right an action that is in itself evil. Okay. Um, And then there's some principles that apply in every case. If you jump forward into the next section on morality of the passions, 17... Oh, it's even past that. I encourage you to read through that. All these articles are really, really important stuff. But 1789... (coughs) 1789, some rules apply in every case. 1789 one may never do evil so that good may result from it you can never intend the evil it may be a byproduct but it should be, it has to be unintended you never do evil so that good may result from it machiavelli not our model <laughs> uh, the golden rule uh, whatever you wish that men would do to you so, do so to them that always applies And then uh, charity always proceeds by way of respect for one's neighbor and his conscience. Uh, Thus, sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, it is not right to do anything that makes your brother stumble. This is the whole principle that's really um, important to the church of the whole kind of scandal. Um, You may have seen in the news this week that a Catholic university in Texas invited Hillary Clinton to come and speak. And the bishop of San Antonio is like, um, nobody consulted me before you invited her as a speaker. And everybody's like, how dare the bishop make any you know, fuss about this? But he's like, no, the fuss is this is scandal. I'm not saying that you can't vote for her. I'm saying that she's a proponent of abortion rights. And for a Catholic university to invite her, invite her to speak, that's sinning gravely against the conscience of all the people that are, will look at that and say, oh, so a Catholic church doesn't really hold the line on abortion. It, it can cause doubt in the minds of those who are uncertain, and that's, that's people are held responsible for causing scandal in the hearts of others. That's what they're getting to. So charity always says, you know, maybe what I'm doing, I have my reasons, and maybe it's the right thing to do in my mind, but you know what? What's, what is my neighbor going to think? What, what kind of conclusions are they going to reach by my making that decision?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Or maybe it's cohabitating. Maybe, maybe I've got a female roommate people in my apartment complex, oh, that guy's shacking up, you know, maybe that's not at all the case, but the, pr- the, govern- the governing principle of Scandal said it'd probably it'd be best if we didn't live in the same apartment, because of the bad example it's giving. Don't
2: worry <laughs> about that.
0: <laughs> I have nothing to worry about, I just got engaged to my iPhone, so. <laughs> 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 but we're, yeah, when we get to marriage, we'll see there's problems there, because uh, I think that's an impediment if your spouse is a that's
2: a technology about <laughs> her speaking <laughs> sorry so if, if you go mm-hmm. back to and say that she's the least of all the evils i mean how yeah cuz okay right. let's just say somebody is pro life however mm-hmm. you know they could be i mean you know their um view on like let's say globalization and stuff like that mm-hmm. that's obviously going to probably affect more people than, let's say
5: the pro-life issue, you Are know you what I mean? Back, or is
2: it going back to what you're saying of, it's okay to vote, we just don't want to make it look like we're endorsing this person to come the speak, but if it's the the least of all the evils to vote for, that's okay?
0: Well, the, the issue here is like Barbara was saying in that... ...in
2: your own time and keep it quiet? Barbara mm-hmm. was
0: talking about a couple weeks ago is the role of the lady and the role of the clergy. The tricky thing is to have the bishop saying who to vote for because that's ultimately not his realm or his domain of even if he's an expert in whatever, it's simply not his role in the church to be making those kind of statements. It's it's up to groups of lay people to, to make informed decisions about who they're voting for. Um, so, the, you know, a clergyman should never say vote for X, Y, or Z, or don't vote for X, or Z. He's just, not that he's wrong, That he's really overstepped his authority, and that's dangerous because people look to him, obviously, and, and then make the assumption that, oh, well, if I'm not doing what the bishop says, I must be in sin. It's like... That's not a matter of sin. So you know, shouldn't have
2: said they shouldn't have invited her?
0: Yeah, no, he's free, perfectly free. They were, they were shaming him. For me, he's good at shaming people for all the wrong reasons. was he 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 perfectly within his rights to say he has a right as a bishop to say who speaks at a Catholic institution and who doesn't. However, in this case, the institution was not formally associated with the archdiocese, so ultimately he doesn't have the authority to have her not speak. That's the, that's the danger of having private Catholic institutions that are not answerable to the bishop. You can get this kind of craziness, and it happens mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh,
0: but good for the, to say, you know, hey, uh, nobody consulted me. And he, he did it in the right way. He didn't say, how dare you, because he knew he didn't have the authority, you know, to, to mandate that she not speak. He's like, this is troubling. This is scandalous. And I, I think you've made a bad decision. So, yeah, we'll see a lot more of that in the coming months, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. When when we were in um, we were in flex during the last election and um, the, the pastor of our church was telling us who to vote for and, and it's just it, it's just awful. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's also illegal.
0: I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It is yeah. <laughs> <Yeah, there's> that. <laughs> yeah. Um, last part that of, of we want to look at here is um, in 1790 to 1793. Erroneous judgment. This is so important. People get this wrong so much, especially in the church since the 1960s. Um, there's a whole teaching on conscience. I think you had, probably you had you a had class on conscience. Is that part of the class on freedom? No? OK. Um, the, the principle is that a man, OK, here we go. 1790, a human being must always obey the certain judgment of his conscience. You can't violate your conscience. If your conscience is telling you to do or not to do something, and you, you do the opposite of what conscience is telling you, that's not right. You, you must obey your conscience. That's the rule of Catholic life. The problem is people will trot out all sorts of excuses then for doing X, Y, or Z. So, like, well, my conscience said I should have, you know, I have the abortion. And that was, you know, what my conscience told me. So how could I violate what my conscience told me? And then, wait, 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 back up. It says, you must obey the certain judgment of your conscience. Okay, If he were deliberately to act against it, he would condemn himself. Yet it can happen, not only can it happen, but it happens left and right, that moral conscience <laughs> remains in ignorance and makes erroneous judgments about acts to be performed or already committed. Okay, So if you don't know what's right, sure, your conscience is poorly formed. Um, you have a duty to overcome that. Uh, and I'm just going to talk a little bit more about this this ignorance can often be imputed to personal responsibility this is the case when a man takes little trouble to find out what is true and good or when conscience is by degrees almost blinded through the habit of committing sin in such cases the person is guilty is culpable for the evil he commits so, um, yeah it's an important principle that's what we call um, there's two kinds of ignorance there's vincible and there's invincible and as you might imagine, principle is, is the thing that can be conquered. Okay. There's ignorance you can overcome and you're responsible for those things. Uh, so here we go. Seventeen ninety two. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example given by others, Clayton worshiping his iPhone,
5: mm-hmm.
0: enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, like my conscience is final word, rejection of the church's authority and her teaching, lack of conversion and of charity, these can be at the source of errors of judgment and moral conduct. So this bad living makes you sloppy in your mind and your will. And, um, yeah. If, on the contrary, the ignorance is invincible, can't be overcome, or the moral subject is r- not responsible for his erroneous judgment, the evil committed by the person cannot be imputed to him. He's not personally held guilty. It remains no less an evil, though, a, pra- a privation, a disorder. One must therefore work to correct the errors of moral conscience. A good and pure conscience is enlightened by true faith, for f- charity proceeds at the same time from a pure heart and a good conscience and, severe- and sincere faith. The more a correct conscience prevails, the more do persons and groups turn aside from blind choice and try to be guided by objective standards of moral conscience. So, they're trying to give you some discernment there. It's like, well, is my conscience good and pure? All right, well, you know, charity proceeds from a pure heart, good conscience of sheer faith. Um, what are you kind, again, it goes back to the source of morality, what are you choosing, why are you choosing it, and what are the circumstances around it? So, so the church starts not with, you know, do this, don't do that. It's like, okay, here's your principles. You've got to figure out in the difficult situations, what to do and what not to do. Okay, I'm going to have to wrap it there. There's a lot more, but uh, we'll have another class. We'll actually start diving into commandments, but we'll probably spend a little more time in the virtues. And, um, yeah, go from there. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, take care, and God bless.